Welcome to Long Now, a podcast exploring the many threads of long-term thinking. I'm Mikko Järvenpää, Director of Development here at the Long Now Foundation. We're interested in what we call the Long Now, our society on the timescales of civilizations, but also the big here, which refers to our lives intertwining with those all over the planet. Henry Farrell's work concerns both the big here and the long now. As a professor working on democracy and international affairs at Johns Hopkins University and previously a fellow at Stanford's Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, Henry Farrell has delved into the inner workings of our global political system. More specifically, he's taken a look into globalization and what he calls its complex aftermath. Over the past century, and especially the past few decades, America's relationship with the world has evolved. The United States has become deeply enmeshed at the center of a globalized market system. That position has enriched the U.S., but as Farrell argues, it has also in the long run put the U.S. in a more fragile position. Farrell brings up the idea of the polycrisis, popularized by economic historian Adam Tooze, to describe the interlocking set of problems facing the global system right now, problems that aren't just happening at the same moment in time, but are actively feeding into each other. Henry is joined here in conversation by Nils Gilman, Senior Vice President of Programs at the Berggruen Institute, Deputy Editor of Noema magazine, and a longtime friend of Long Now. In his own Long Now talk from 2010, he spoke to us about what he called deviant globalization, another set of unintended consequences of our interconnected place in the big here. But before we get into the intricacies of the global economic system, a quick note. All of the Long Now Foundation's support comes from our donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you. You make this all possible. If you haven't yet joined, please consider going to longnow.org join and becoming the newest member of Long Now. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Now, let's hear from Henry Farrell on the complex aftermath of globalization. So, thank you so much all for coming here, and I have to say how wonderful it is for me to be here this evening. I've been following the Long Now conversation for years, and it is just a genuine thrill to be a part of that conversation in a small way for just one evening. This is something that is very, very exciting, and that makes me very, very, very happy indeed. So, what I'm going to be talking about tonight, what I'm going to be bringing to this conversation, is this discussion of, as I put it in the official title for this talk, Complex Aftermath of Globalization. And the idea behind that title is fairly straightforward. You want to give a title which gives a sense of the topic, but maybe doesn't say quite too much about the topic so that people don't think that they have an idea of what it is that you're going to say, so that they're perhaps a little intrigued, so that they'll perhaps come along and see and find out what it is that you have to talk about. And I've got a confession to make. 
which is that this is the official title of the talk. It is not actually the working title that I had when I was actually thinking about the talk and trying to put together its themes and its arguments. I had a very different title, a title that is probably going to be completely incomprehensible to most people until after the talk is finished, which is that this is the talk about the bagel and the polycrisis. Now, I can see already, you know, so I worry that there might be a little bit of a rush to the doors. How could we have a talk which brings together these two very different things? By the end of the talk, you will have a good idea of the logic of how the bagel and the polycrisis actually fit together in ways that make sense and that are not just reducible to the piece of cheesy AI-generated art that I'm using to illustrate the ways that the two actually sort of collide in some way, shape, or form. That is not the only confession that I'm going to make this evening. The second confession, and I suspect that this is a pretty common confession that is made or that should be made by people who are giving long now talks, is that I have a book to promote. This is a book which is co-authored with Abraham Newman. It is called Underground Empire, How America Weaponized the World Economy. And it is a wonderful book. It is a great book. It is fun. The Financial Times described it this week as being a gripping book. And it gives you an important story about the world. It tells us how the world economy, how the world's communications networks, how the world's manufacturing networks, all of these were supposed to be decentralized in globalization. And it turns out that they get centralized. Once they become centralized, this allows the United States to uh, figure out ways to use them as tools of uh, coercion, as tools in order to uh, surveil the world. And now, over the last few years, we're beginning to see what happens as other great powers, as businesses, as uh, ordinary people, begin to figure out what is happening, and new, complex, difficult, and weird politics are resulting. And here's the third confession. This is the last thing you're going to hear specifically about the book during this talk. This is going to be your talk about all of the stuff that I would have loved to have stuffed into the book's 288 pages, but that didn't particularly fit very well because it is not the neat argument, the neat logic, the kinds of things that you can put into a taut, tense narrative. It is, in a certain sense, it is the book's weird cousin. It is the weird cousin that comes out of nowhere, that grabs you by your cardigan, tells you urgently about all sorts of stuff that it is insistence that you need to know about, that you didn't know about before, and that for some important reason that is partly incomprehensible, you need to know about right now. So, what is the story that I'm going to talk about this evening? It's a very different set of questions, but it is a set of questions that really touch upon this broader, broader problem of where we are after globalization. What I really want to talk about is America's relationship with the world and the ways in which American policymakers, the people who made decisions, think and thought about America's relationship with the world, and how they thought, what were the problems that they wanted to solve on the one hand, and what were the means that they could use to try to address these problems with the other. President Eisenhower, when he left the presidency, famously gave an address where he warned of the dangers of what he called the military-industrial uh, complex. 
And so what he was warning about here was not just the kinds of things that we think about when we think about the military-industrial complex today, the kinds of relationships between uh, military contractors and the Pentagon. Uh, Eisenhower was worried about that, but he had a much, much bigger set of fears that he wanted to express, which was that the United States was a, a country where much of the entrepreneurial energy, much of the scientific energy, was effectively being controlled by the federal government, was being directed by the federal government's priorities, by its security needs, and a lot of other things um, were seen as being secondary, unnecessary, or irrelevant. And Eisenhower, being a moderate conservative, a moderate Republican, worried about what this would do to American discovery, American entrepreneurialism over the longer term. And indeed, if you look to see many of the important discoveries that actually began to come really into flower during the period after this, during the period of globalization, actually had their origins in this military-industrial complex. If, for example, you think about the internet, famously the internet is a byproduct of Pentagon spending. If you look at Silicon Valley, as Margaret O'Mara has documented in a really great book, The Code, which I recommend that you uh, read if you haven't read it already, Silicon Valley and the uh, commercialization of the semiconductor were again byproducts of military spending and the need of the military, for example, for sophisticated missile guidance systems, which led to the development of semiconductors and similar technologies and then these, of course, discovered civilian applications as well. So this is a period when the problem primarily have to do with national security. These are the problems that occupy people's minds, and the solutions to that uh, problem primarily have to do with the exercise of the power of the technocratic state. So, what happens when the Cold War finishes, when the Berlin Wall comes down, and all of these wonderful things begin to happen? We get the glorious dawn of globalization and a very, very different way of thinking about the world. When the Soviet Union collapses uh, relatively quickly, the United States finds itself in a world where it does not have an adversary anymore. Instead, it sees an endless progress of potential triumph. It has won. Its system has won. Its system is being embraced by everybody. China may still be communist in name, but uh, people hope and people assume that as it embraces the free market, it too will gradually become more liberal. And so you see a move away from security fears. National security it certainly doesn't disappear. The Pentagon is still going strong, but the imagination of policymakers is primarily focused on a different set of goals that have to do with prosperity. And trying to generate it, trying to maintain it. This is seen as a master key to a better world now that the arrival of the Soviet Union has disappeared. And the more that the world becomes prosperous along US lines, the better off not only will the world be, but the United States will be too. And we begin to see, of course, the uh, many changes that uh, happen as the United States begins to push this as a different political agenda and as different international institutions begin to open up and begin to embrace this as well. So 
if the goal is prosperity, the means to find this is not through the technocratic state. The state, to a very great extent, recedes into the wings, and instead people start to push for solutions via free markets, via the market system. Milton Friedman, his justification of markets as enabling individual choice far, far better than states is something that is a, plays an extremely important role. He and his colleagues push for the notion that markets are efficient and that state intervention into the marketplace, except under highly limited conditions, is a bad idea. Also, at the same time, they enable new forms of discovery. Because the market is this spontaneous order, it is far more conducive to open-ended discovery of what people might actually want than any system that is run by a government ever, ever possibly could be. So this logic is really the logic that we see prevailing in how it is that policymakers think about the US's role in the world up until six or seven years ago. And it also seems, according to some people, to have the answers, or some answers at least to national security questions as well. There's another Friedman who's important, Thomas Friedman, who is still writing for the New York Times, who in his arguments about a flat world suggests that a world which is based upon more and more globalization, more market freedom, more market competition, is going to be a world in which supply chains spread across borders, and as that happens, the world is going to become more secure, because if you are looking to invade your neighbor, you are really going to be cutting off your nose to spite your face, because you're going to be damaging your neighbor's economy by so doing, and you're going to damage your own economy by extension. So this is a set of ideas which prove to be extraordinarily powerful, as always, they are more complicated in the implementation than they sound in the abstract, but they really do have important consequences in changing the world and in moving the United States to think about a different set of goals to be achieved with a different set of tools, and in particular, the tools of the market. That's your potted history. Where are we now? Well, if we were in a world during the Cold War where people thought that the government knows best, and we moved from that world into a world where the market knows best. We're now in a world where famously William Goldman said of Hollywood that nobody knows anything. That is to say that we're in a world where we have begun to realize that the many of the promises that were made about globalization didn't actually turn out to be true. Some did. It did produce enormous prosperity in parts of the world, which is incredibly important. But it has left a welter of problems and of extremely complex problems in its wake. So, if you look at the way that the Biden administration is thinking about the world, it is very, very clear that it has taken this set of problems quite seriously. If you look at, for example, speeches made by officials such as the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, or Catherine Tai, who is the uh, US Trade Representative, or Gina Raimondo, who is the uh, Secretary of Commerce, all of these, they are singing from the same hymn book. And there's a hymn book which says, globalization achieved many benefits in terms of, um, sort of providing prosperity to the world, trade is good and wonderful, and so on. But what we have is a world in which this has led to many unexpected problems proliferating and becoming worse. So they, for example, they point to the ways in which the supply chains that have spread across the world turn out to be incredibly vulnerable. They turn out to be fragile when you see something 
something like coronavirus happening, they also turn out to be possibly usable by America's enemies against it, as well as, although they don't stress this uh, as much for obvious reasons, by America against its own adversaries. We also see uh, ways in which um, climate change um, sort of is harder to tackle because of the way that the global economy works. And we see, uh, very importantly, the uh, ways in which changes have really perhaps even endangered US democracy. If you look at the hollowing out of US industry in key parts of the Midwest, this is plausibly part of the important story for why so many voters became dissatisfied with the existing system and decided to place their bets on somebody like Donald Trump. And that is a story that we are all living with today. So the Biden administration is looking decisively to break with the old wisdom of globalization with these simplifications that I have described. To its credit, it is trying to avoid moving back to the previous simplifications of the Cold War, which are equally pernicious in their own ways. And it is trying to muddle through. It is trying to figure out what are the new possibilities that you might have to solve these incredibly, incredibly worrying problems that we face that seem to perhaps endanger us all. So now, I'm going to deliver on the first part of my promise, which is talking about the polycrisis. So if you look at this, if you want to look at the problem side of the equation, there is a lot of value to a view that the historian Adam Tooze has developed, building upon an older concept called the polycrisis to really describe why it is that we seem to be in such dire straits right now. His idea is fairly straightforward. There are many, many problems out there. We do not face just one crisis. We face multiple crises at once. We face climate change. We face pandemic. We face war. We face some sort of the weaponization of the economy. We face vast changes in migration. And all of these problems are to some greater or lesser extent apparently feeding on themselves. Even worse, they're all feeding upon each other in some quite important ways. So just to take an example, if you think about the way that climate change works, it is plausibly weakening democracy in certain countries in Western Europe, and we're likely to see more and more of that happening, because as people begin to try to respond to climate change, they realize that it is going to be incredibly costly to make the transition to a post-carbon economy, and immediately bitter disputes and fights begin over who is going to pay that cost, should we pay that cost at all, or should we just sort of put it off again or hope that other people, other countries will pay it instead of us. And you again begin to see this as being something that strengthens populists, strengthens the far right, people who are pushing back against democracy, pushing back against established ways of doing things because they see this as being a threat to their way of life. Similarly, you can see how climate change increases the likelihood of migration, people fleeing parts of the world that are becoming rapidly uninhabitable. And so Tuza's point is that these crises tend to magnify and exacerbate each other, uh, that the economic aspects and the non-economic aspects, as he put, puts it, are tangled all the way down and that we feel that we have so many different problems competing for our attention, each of them enormous in their own right. So that's one part of bad news. The bagel is the other part. So here, this is an idea that I'm taking from Ezra Klein. So 
Ezra is trying to diagnose the other side of this, which is that if Tuz is focusing on the problems, Klein is focusing on the uh, parts of policy which are intended to address problems, and he's coming up with a diagnosis that in its own way is equally troubling. What he suggests is that our policy process in the United States, it's very, very difficult to get things done because of the number of veto points that there are and because of the tendency that policymakers have, uh, because there are so many different interests, so many different constituencies, to try and lard on requirement after requirement, standard after standard, in order to try and you know, sort of to, you know, to use whatever policy instruments are supposed to achieve a single thing, end up trying to do 20 or 30 or 40 different things at the same time. So Ezra is somebody who is a recent uh, transplant from California. Some of this is, I think, a very explicitly an expression of his frustration with the inability of uh, people to get things done, to um, sort of get planning uh, permission, to um, sort of to do big things in California because of how many different people have to sign off. But he also explicitly argues that we see the same kind of thing happening with the bigger geopolitical questions. So that for example, he looks at the ways in which efforts to try and get the United States to produce semiconductors so that it is not so uh, reliant on the outside world anymore and the risks, the geopolitical risks that that involves, that these efforts to provide subsidies to uh, companies to set up semiconductor fabs, they require childcare facilities and other things. And so more or less his argument is that the more that you try to lard on these different kinds of uh, requirements, the uh, less likely it is that your policy will be able to succeed at any of them. So in other words, what we have, instead of these simplifications that we had in uh, different eras, we have these accounts of what you might call impossible complexities from both ends. Impossible complexities in the problems that we have to deal with, impossible complexities in the policy processes that we have which are supposed to deal with them. And there are important differences between the way in which Adam Tooze and Ezra Klein think about the world. Adam Tooze's arguments suggest that we need solutions that tackle multiple problems at once. Ezra Klein suggests that if we try to do this, we're probably likely to lose focus. But both of them, I think, provide reasons for considerable pessimism about our ability to control confront the massive problems that we need to confront. So where are we? I think that we're in a world where you know, the everything bagel is meeting the polycrisis, and we really need to start thinking about what other possible ways we might have to get forward. And here again, it's not entirely wonderful. You may have been able to tell from my accent, I'm from Ireland. And so there's a famous joke in Ireland, at least famous to Irish people, I don't know if it's well known in the United States, it concerns an American tourist who finds himself lost on the back roads, the Boreans as we call them of Ireland, doesn't have a clue where they are, and finally they're driving along and they come across a farmer. And they ask the farmer, how in the name of God am I going to get to Lisdun Varna? And the farmer looks at them and he scratches his chin and he thinks for a minute, he looks in this direction, he looks in that direction. He scratches his chin again for another minute. He says, well, if I wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here. And I think for better or for worse, that is the world we are in. We are in a world where it is incredibly difficult to see what the ways forward are that we might have. 
I can describe in the abstract the kinds of policy instruments that we would ideally like to have. We would like to have policy instruments that were capable of, first of all, identifying the complexities and representing the complexities of the problems that people like Adam Tooze describe in ways that make them actionable, you know, sort of have theories of, well, here are the weak points that we can go after. Then you would like to be able to obviously address problems to those complexities, and then these uh, policies that address these problems, you would like to be able to rapidly revise them. It could be that they don't work as you expect because your model is wrong. It could be that they work much, much better than you ever expected and you want to build on them. Either which way you want to be able to do these things in a rapid and reactive fashion. And if you read people who write and who think about the uh, US government, like Jennifer Palka, you will see that this is not the kind of policy apparatus that we have or the kind of policy apparatus that we are likely to have anytime soon. So I am not going to provide you with a specific list of guidelines as to what we do next. What I'm going to do, you know, so if I, I, I am an Irishman, but I'm also an academic, which means that I have some license to be a little bit unrealistic at times as well. I'm going to say, here are at least some very, very broad pathways that we might want to investigate further that are possibly going to lead us in good directions. Uh, these are pathways which primarily identify ideas that have been uh, laid out by other people, but that I think also provide some promise as to ways forward that we might want to think about. First, problem-centered publics. So what is the idea here? Well, the idea here is fairly straightforward. During the potted history that I've described, we have had an emphasis on the technocratic state, on top-down leadership. We've had an emphasis on the miracle of markets. What we have not tried ever to do in any very sophisticated way is to use democracy as a means of problem-solving and problem-identification. And there is an old tradition of trying to think about that, which comes from pragmatist philosophers like John Dewey in the early 20th century, which suggested that uh, democracy is as much as anything else, it's a means of knowledge creation, it's a means of information gathering. And the intuition behind this is pretty straightforward, that members of the public, very often they are not particularly sophisticated in their understanding of deep causal mechanisms, of, of, sort of, of complex uh, factors, this, that, and the other, but what they do know very well, and what is often very valuable information, is how it is that these problems actually affect them in their day-to-day lives. And so then the question is, can you bring this information that the public has together with people who have expertise? Can you create appropriate institutions? And if you can do that, uh, you can probably also mobilize the public in ways that give people a genuine stake in problem solving that they don't have at the moment. So there are people who are thinking about this in the early 21st century who are quite different uh, from John Dewey, but who I think are thinking in a somewhat similar way. There is a wonderful science fiction novel that I recommend that I have found influencing my thinking quite a lot on this by a woman called Ruthanna Emrys, A Half-Built Garden. What she's trying to do is she's trying to imagine a world which is post-climate change where you see a technocratic government continuing. You see people organizing around river watersheds. 
States. And she gives a vision of a world in which you can use high-powered sensors, you can use some sort of discussion, debate, argument, fighting AIs in order to actually get things done. And it is a, you know, it, this is a science fictional vision, but it actually has some very, very interesting ideas about how you might actually begin to apply these things in the real world. And not only that, but there are some fantastic uh, younger people who are trying to think in very similar ways. And here the uh, people pictured are Divya Siddharth and Safran Huang, who have this collective intelligence project, which is really trying to figure out how can we put democratic institutions together that better take advantage of technology in order to solve these big, broader problems. Another possible source of insight, cybernetics. Now, I think that on the left, we're seeing a kind of a romanticization of cybernetics, which might not be entirely ideal. But nonetheless, I think there are some very, very valuable ideas in cybernetics, uh, if you cut through some of the jargon, which could be revived, which I think could help us, especially as we think about how to try to redesign bureaucracy. So, and this is an insight I owe to uh, Daniel Davies, who has a great book that is coming out on this next year. People like Stafford Beer uh, tried to figure out how to rebuild organizations in ways that made them more responsive to complexity. And the two key lessons that I think that they have there is, first of all, you need to have ways to actively represent the complexity of the problem within the system that is trying to uh, resolve it. And secondly, that you need to be able to design feedback loops so that you are capable of uh, adapting rapidly to uh, whatever solutions are needed and figuring out on the fly what works well and what works not so well and so on. And so these kinds of design principles are not the design principles that people think about when, for example, they are designing uh, federal government agencies. They are not the kinds of design principles that people think about when they are designing businesses or nonprofits. There is a lot of work that we could probably do to try and develop this. Final idea, Chagas herding. Okay. So this is perhaps you know, sort of even weirder than the bagel and the polycrisis, if that is possible. But uh, the fundamental idea here, uh, this is something that Cosma Schlitzi and I wrote for The Economist a few months ago, uh, vigorously disagreeing with people about large language models and other forms of applied machine learning or AI. And our intuition is something like as follows. There are a lot of people who think about large language models as being some form of artificial general intelligence in the making. You, know, you read Sam Altman, you read all of the people who talk about this, and there's this kind of frenzied excitement about that. Many of these people talk about large language models, the people who worry about AI risk, they talk about them as being shoggoths. These are these, sort of these shapeless monstrosities from H.P. Lovecraft, which were created by these other shapeless monstrosities and eventually rebel against them and drive them into the oceans and all sorts of unpleasant things. And so the notion that it's supposed to be communicated is that large language models, they appear to be human, but behind their human masks are these bubbling monstrosities of protoplasm which are going to devour and destroy us if they ever get a half a chance. So what Cosma and I argue is, well, you can think about large language models and similar things as being shoggoths in this sense, 
But if they're shoggoths, uh, they're not shoggoths because they're going to become uh, self-aware or intelligent. They're shoggoths because they are monstrosities in the same way that bureaucracies and markets and even democracy can be monstrosities. That is that they are these complex systems for taking vast and incredibly irreducibly complex uh, bodies of human information and creating useful but lossy representations of them. That is what markets do according to Hayek. Prices are, in effect, they are lossy representations of this uh, much larger reality of incredibly complex supply and demand decisions. Uh, that is what bureaucracy is about according to uh, James Scott, who deplores it. Uh, bureaucracies, again, they take this rich no local knowledge and they turn it into a thin slurry of abstract concepts that are actionable. And so what we want to argue is that large language models and other forms of machine learning, their use is going to be in taking bodies of information that democracy has, that is possessed in the, by the body of democratic citizens, or alternatively, that is uh, possessed within bureaucracies and making it more useful, making it more readily available by generating lossy but still nonetheless useful summaries of the information, which provides possibly a new set of ways of hand handling compl complexity and perhaps uh, enables some of the uses of cybernetics, some of the uses of democratic publics that we talked about earlier, by providing technologies that actually allow them to work at scale potentially in ways that they have not in the past. So that's where we are. And I don't think that these are particularly satisfactory answers. They really are less answers than waving in the direction of methodologies which may produce answers one day. And that means that we can't rely on this on its own. I think that we do need to start thinking about and focusing on immediate problems that we can solve with the tools that we have to hand. But at the same time, and again, this is a very long now way of thinking about it, I think, we need to think towards the future. And we also need to think as we are solving smaller problems. We start small, but we want to think about what are the destinations that we have in mind? What are the bigger tools that we can build? And how can we try to scale these tools up over time so that they solve the bigger, more profound problems that really challenge us, that really could, uh, in the end of the day, destroy us if we don't do something about them? So that's where I want to finish. I want to also thank many people. I'm sort of the, if you have heard anything that sounds to you even halfway intelligence during this uh, conversation, this is due to uh, one of the many co-authors that I show you in the slide, or else alternatively it is due to one of the many people who I have collaborated with on other stuff in the uh, past, or who have just given me advice, or whatever. If there is anything that is deeply and irremediably stupid, it is all down to me. So thank you all very much. And uh, with that, I guess I will finish the talk and uh, look forward to the further conversation. Thank you. I want to start by with a quote from Karl Marx um, that many of you are probably familiar with. Marx famously said that men make history, but they do not make it just as they please. They do not make it under circumstances chosen by themselves, but under circumstances directly encountered, given, transmitted from the past. One of the things that really comes out in your talk and in your book is the question of path dependence, like the, 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 the way in which the era of te the technocratic state, the Cold War, 
That emerges out of you know, the World War II and the Great Depression era before it. The era of globalization and, and market centricity emerges out of some of the failings of the previous system. And we're now living in the failures of globalization and some new system is emerging that we don't yet have a name for. So I'm wondering when you think about that, the way in which new systems, new macro systems emerge out of the contradictions that engulfed the previous system, what are the limits to the futures that we have available to us long term that the poly crisis that globalization has bequeathed us are imposing? What are the possibility spaces that are not available to us anymore? So that's a very good question. And there are a lot of spaces that are not available to us, which might have been available 30 or 40 years ago. And I think about this not just in terms of uh, past dependence, which is really how our past institutional habits reinforce our future ones, but also just in terms of resources that are un unavailable to us are changes to the physical environment, which are things that social scientists like me, by and large, don't pay attention to. We treat them as being constants. And of course, of course, they're variables, and they're variables which in many ways are going in the wrong direction right now. So I think you know, if, we, you know, if we had had the intelligence to uh, begin to tackle some of these problems 30 to 40 years ago, I think we would be in a different world. Equally, and this gets to the topics of the book more than it gets to the topics of the uh, talk that I've just given, if people had realized how much geopolitical risk was going to be involved in globalization uh, 30 or 40 years ago, it really would never have happened. And this is something that I think turns to uh, things that you think about and worry about, which is we are now in a world where we need to create more common systems to fight climate change, to uh, figure out the transition to a post-carbon economy, and we are doing so in a situation of profound distrust, which is a result of globalization having gone sour. So I think one of the big challenges we have is, you know, given that we are in these historical conditions, which, as Mark said, are not of our making, what possibilities for agency do we have? Can, and this is part of what we try to do in the book is to say, first of all, try to get out of the spiral that you are in with China, where uh, this mutual hostility and suspicion, you know, so China's suspicion is building on, on the United States, and the United States is building on China. And secondly, start to think about while you have this power, what kinds of collective endeavors can you apply this to, which could legitimate it, and which could also perhaps help to solve some of these problems as well. Great, great. I, I, I want to put a pin in the question of what should we do for a second and stay uh, instead for a moment about trying to imagine what are the futures we're likely to get. So what is the post-globalization future going to look like? There's been a couple of uh, books that have been published recently on this that I think might be relevant for thinking about this. The political scientist Steve Weber wrote a book a couple of years ago called Block by Block, where he anticipated yeah. that we're basically going to break away from a single global integrated market into a series of regionally defined blocks one centered on East Asia, maybe one centered on North America, dominated by the United States, maybe one centered on Europe. Um, and that we'll see much less trade between these. What's interesting about that as a kind of a prediction of the future of where we're going or a forecast of the future is, you know, people are talking about how terrible globalization is, but you know, you actually aren't seeing that much decline in global trade yet. You're seeing changes in the global structure, but the actual numbers have not declined. 
But are we actually going to see that? Can we actually, I mean, this is the path dependency point. Can we actually get to a point where we break back to a Cold War world where we really have separated walls? I really don't think so. I think when I re read Steve's book, I think about uh, Keynes' quote about how uh, people, you know, so politicians who fancy that they're completely free for, from ideas are caught up in the uh, frenzy of some scribbler, uh, right? And uh, Steve Weber is one of those scribblers because if he predicted what the conventional wisdom was going to be, which is the conventional wisdom right now, now is that we are going to break up into blocks. I think that there is probably more evidence uh, than in the public debate that there is, there are changes in trade patterns happening. Equally, I don't think we're ever going to get into a world that uh, resembles the Cold War world. I think that the United States economy and the uh, Chinese economy are too deeply reliant upon each other for that to happen. And if you look at what, the, uh, what Sullivan and Raimondo, when she went to China a couple of weeks ago, are doing, they are really pushing for what they call a, uh, a small yard, high fence model in which restrictions would be applied only to a relatively narrow set of uh, technologies that have obviously dire strategic or military implications. It's going to be really hard to maintain that uh, because the problem is that the yard is going to keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I think that uh, if you look at the policy debate in DC, there is a huge amount of fear of China. But I also think that the two have too much at stake in each other's interconnections for there to ever be a really really decisive break. So I think instead we're going to get something which is, uh, you know, it, it, if it's like the Cold War, it's in the weird ambiguities of the Cold War more than in the uh, sense of rigid separations of systems. It's going to be like a kind of a John le Carre Cold War where all of the interesting stuff is happening in the messy interstices and where people are trying to manage these interstices in order to make sure that uh, really bad, bad stuff doesn't happen. Okay, so this gets us to the question, what do we, what do, we do about this? Um, one of the things you talk about a little bit in the talk and also in the book is that you know, what's happened is because of these choke points you're describing that go through London or go through New York or go through Northern Virginia, choke points that are financial infrastructure, that are informational infrastructure, the US and the argument you make in the book is that the turning point is really 9-11 and the global war on terror, where initially we realized we could chase down terrorists and, and chase down terrorist finance by monitoring these systems. So you have a whole narrative that you tell about how this sort of emerged organically out of sort of initially the panicked moments of post-9-11 and then it got institutionalized during the global war on terror. And you basically think, your argument, I think, is that this is a mistake because it's going to drive more paranoia and it's going to drive separation and we're going to lose the benefits of globalization with very few upsides in exchange. And you argue instead that we should be thinking more about these, this infrastructure as a commonwealth, as a common shared resource. Talk to me a little bit about how that would look differently from what the US, the posture the US has been taking over the last 20 years. So this is one of the areas, I think that the uh, final chapters of books are, there's a reason why they are unsatisfying uh, usually, which is it is really hard to come up with uh, convincing and compelling solutions to problems. So I think, what we offer in the final chapter, I don't think that we're ever going to be able to get into a full Commonwealth situation. I think that there is just too much hostility and distrust. And equally, and this is the uh, 
side that had been pressed upon me by uh, US uh, officials who are grumpy with the book, and I think it is a very reasonable point. Because when they look at China, China is an authoritarian regime which does gr terrible things to Uyghurs, which is uh, not a particularly nice neighbor to have. And there are very good reasons why the United States wants to press back against China as much as possible, and why other countries, if they were thinking straight about this, at least other democracies, would uh, view this as being uh, very often a pretty good thing. So, uh, but we're never going to get, be able to get away from uh, power. We're never going to be able to get away from the, the fundamental fact that we live in a world where there aren't international restraints on power of that sort. So what we are looking for from the United States is less that they give up the keys to empire than that they try not to exercise it in stupid ways, and they try to exercise it for the common benefit. So if there is a ghost hanging over that uh, segment of the argument, I think that it is the ghost of uh, another famous economist, Charles Kindleberger, who made these arguments for uh, hegemony back in the 1970s. And more or less what he said is, you United States is a global hegemon, that is, it is in charge of the global economy, but you need a hegemon sometimes to knock heads together when there is a crisis and to make sure that everybody coordinates to do the right thing. If you have the United States moving towards a model of hegemony, I think that will be a better situation than the situation we're in. Equally, if I wanted to think about the good arguments against what we say, I think a lot of the good arguments would be that we are writing really from the uh, perspective of the powerful governments, the powerful states in the system. And uh, if you are somebody who is at the receiving end of some of these things, even if it seems to you plausibly that uh, perhaps this is sometimes going to be in the common good, it is also going to be in the common good as defined by the United States. And there's also going to be a lot of self in that definition, international politics being what international politics are. So I can imagine that uh, we very plausibly and very reasonably are going to get a lot of grief and pushback from people for saying, you know, for not being uh, more critical of the uh, empire than we are. So on the one hand, as I say, there are people who I think are reasonably grumpy at us, some sort of from within the Biden administration and elsewhere. On the other, there are people who are reasonably unhappy who think that we uh, give uh, the uh, US much too easy a, a time in our argument. And you know, I think both of those are reasonable points of criticism. When you write a book like this, you're obviously making a strong argument, but you're not making an argument thinking that it is the only appropriate argument out there. You also recognize that there are other perspectives, other points of view, which uh, very reasonably are going to come to quite different understandings of the world than you do. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about, about the position you find yourself in now, Henry, is that you know, if you look at every decade, there's always a couple of key concepts that become, you can say, maybe the cliche of the era, but the defining kind of feature. Your argument that you made in the book actually started as an article that was entitled Weaponized Interdependence. And that term, I think, could be one of those key concepts from the 2020s that in, in decades in the future, people will look back and say, oh, that was a really key concept for understanding the era. And the reason why I say that is that Although you started, you wrote this article with Abraham as a mode of analysis, it's now been picked up by the policymakers themselves to describe what they're doing. You helped them understand what they themselves were engaged in and gave them a vocabulary for understanding. And even though you guys were kind of critical and you're being critical now of this, people have picked it up and said, yeah, that's what I want to do, weaponized interdependence. 
And I bring this up because this brings a really interesting issue from a long now perspective, which is when you make scenarios about the future, one of the things I always think about when I do that kind of work is, am I actually making that future more or less likely when I start to describe that future? And if it's a negative future, you want to describe it in a way that makes it less likely to happen rather than more likely to happen. And I'm wondering if you've had any sort of misgivings about the way in which this concept has been picked up, even though you meant it critically, by people who are now saying, oh my god, that's what I want to do. And you're actually creating the future that you were trying to ward off. So this is something that we think about and that we worry about. I think about it, so William Gibson has a famous uh, dictum, the street finds its own uses for things. I think what we have discovered is the elite finds its own uses for things too. And uh, so one of the stories we tell in the book, I think about this, uh, you may be familiar with, there's a famous internet meme about the torment nexus. Uh, this is a Twitter meme back when Twitter was uh, actually a service you wanted to use, uh, where you have uh, more or less somebody describing, uh, you know, science fiction writer uh, writes this novel called Don't Create the Torment Nexus, and then a Silicon Valley uh, company uh, announces, we have created the torment nexus described in uh, uh, science fiction writers, don't create the torment nexus, how awesome we are. And so I kind of feel a little bit like that with some of the uses that have been made of the term. So one of the things that was actually quite terrifying for us was uh, Chris Miller, who wrote this book called Chip War, which is a very, very good book on semiconductors, uh, which I didn't, I bought the day that it came out, terrified that I would discover that what we were arguing about <laughs> semiconductors was completely wrong. Happily, that didn't turn out to be the case. But then I get about three quarters of the way into the book, and I discover Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman's name coming up. And uh, so Chris, who is uh, somewhat more on the conservative side of the spectrum than we are, uh, talks to an anonymous high-level Trump official who says more or less, we read the uh, weaponized interdependence uh, article, or I read the interdependence, uh, th this article. Uh, I thought that this was, uh, in Chris's description, a wonderful, quote, game plan, unquote. And then I'm sort of, uh, we went and we implemented it in the restrictions against uh, Chinese company Huawei's uh, access to semiconductors, which has, of course, given birth to uh, Biden's, uh, Biden's plan and Biden's efforts to restrict China's uh, access as a whole to uh, the semiconductors that are used to power AI. So in other words, you know, so we found ourselves you know, sort of having warned, as Chris says in this book, we found ourselves having, you know, we warned you know, that this is something that can be overused. We don't want to see the world becoming this world. And in fact, it was used by Trump administration officials to do this. So I guess the constellation for this is, is that I suspect that something like this policy would probably have emerged in any event. Uh, it would have been given a slightly different name, been justified in slightly different ways. But it's also possible it might not have been. One of the real lessons that I think we learned when we were writing this book is so much depends on happenstance. So much depends on one official having a particular idea at a particular time and then this stuff gets set in stone. And there's another part of this, which is, uh, there's a part of the book you know, where I describe Riston's ideas, and I say something like, uh, you know, so if I say something together with Abe, something like, uh, uh, when people's ideas succeed, they degenerate into stale cliches that you get in business bestsellers, and more or less uh, Riston's ideas become you know, sort of what you see piled up in fat heaps uh, during the 1990s and 2000s in airport bookstores around the world. And so I also have a kind of feeling 
if, if we succeed, uh, we uh, are only going to succeed in the sense that people will take up these ideas and perhaps they will uh, use these ideas, but then there are going to be other things that I and Abe never anticipated that are going to uh, turn these ideas into the stale cliches that a new generation of people are going to rip down. So that is the academic life cycle. And I think as I get older, I think one of the great virtues that older academics like me serve is we we're excellent scratching posts for younger academics to sharpen <laughs> their claws on and to figure out how to uh, how to get better, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, use as target practice. And if they're only sharpening their claws and not using us for other and sort of possible functions, I think we're doing extremely well out of the experience. <laughs> okay, I want to take some questions from the audience. This is from Joseph. Um, he says, "Do we have the possibility of doing mass collaboration like Wikipedia to address these large problems?" I think you were touching on that a little bit in reference to Divya and, and Safran's work and thinking yeah. about the way in which we can use technology and large language models to do, you know, to actually try to solve some of these problems. I mean, we tend to see the, the, the major, majority of the discourse right now around the impact of technology on our democracies is that it's a bad, it's you know, undermining, you know, we're gonna get massive amounts of deep fakes and we're gonna have massive amounts of specially targeted disinformation and so on. But what are the possibilities, the upside possibilities that these new technology suites are creating, including large language models, but also new collaboration tools for addressing some of these challenges? Go a little more in detail about that. Okay, that's a great question, and I could talk for hours about it. Uh, and this also makes me feel embarrassed because there's a whole bunch of other collaborators who are not sort of uh, in that last thing, uh, in particular, Melissa Schwartzberg and Hugo Mercier, who are just wonderful academics. And we have a set of arguments around this. And here's, and Wikipedia actually features into the, this uh, story in some interesting ways. So Hugo Mercier, I would really recommend that everybody buy his and Dan Sperber's book, The Enigma of Reason. I think this is a stone cold classic of the social sciences. It is, uh, and their argument is really good, really interesting. They're cognitive psychologists, and they argue as follows. First of all, human reasoning did not evolve as a way of figuring out the world. It evolved as a means for us providing plausible sounding justifications for what it is that we want to get in a social situation. So we, you know, we reason in order to come up with good excuses for why what we want is what everybody should want too. So that, you know, that is a standard argument. It is a, a source of cognitive bias. It means that we, we bullshit but we are not capable ourselves of detecting or smelling our own bullshit. Okay, so that's part one of the argument. The second part of the argument is where it gets really interesting, which is that we are terrible at detecting our own bullshit, but because this is so important, you know, so because we are a social uh, species, we are, by and large, we're pretty good at detecting others' bullshit. Mm. And so then this means that uh, you can harness people's cognitive bias against each other. So you and I disagree strenuously on um, sort of, I don't know, who, who, who has to pay for dinner. I've got great arguments on my side, you've got great arguments on your side, uh, but, our, but probably at the beginning we don't have great arguments. I've got terrible arguments, and you round immediately on the flaw in my argument, and I round on the flaw in your argument, and it ends up, perhaps we uh, converge to some degree, but at the very least we end up with better arguments. So the fundamental notion here is that individual level cognitive flaws can result in better group level reasoning if we are prepared to engage with other people who we disagree with. And so this then has interesting consequences for Wikipedia. Because what this is, it suggests that you can use people's tendencies to be assholes as the fuel for actual good 
you know, not collaboration, but for actually you know, sort of figuring stuff out. And this is in part the story of Wikipedia. There is a work that has been done by a Chicago uh, sociologist, James Evans. He uses, uh, he and his colleagues use natural, natural language processing to look at Wikipedia and to look at the, the amount of disagreement there is on Wikipedia pages. And the uh, fundamental finding that they find is that the greater the degree of polarization and tension that there is in a given Wikipedia talk page, the better the quality of the resulting argument. So this is not because people end up loving each other and singing Kumbaya. They still hate each other at the end of the day, uh, but they grudgingly recognize that there are good arguments. It's kind of like that uh, Onion article of the uh, person, you know, sort of the worst person I know just made a great argument. This <laughs> is the logic that we can actually harness to make democratic institutions work better. And Wikipedia, because it is able to harness the someone on the internet is wrong thing and make that into a force of intellectual discovery, is a very, very interesting model for us to do it. That's great. And so there's a question here from Lesia Hendricks. You know, can a crisis be averted within a short period of time? And can you imagine a scenario in which the climate would be the thing that would flip us into a new system that was about much more international collaboration? Or does that just seem impossible given, as an international relations scholar, you believe in the anarchy of the international system is impossible to overcome. There's always going to be national rivalries that trump everything. Or is it possible in your mind that a vision of the future could be realized in a moment of crisis? I think everything is possible. And I think that the fundamental defect and flaws of the social sciences is that we are stuck with the uh, predictions about the systems and the assumptions that we make. And we do not pay nearly enough attention to contingency, to possibilities. And you know, I think also of uh, another great science fiction writer, Ursula Le Guin, and the arguments that she, made, you know, she makes about, and sort of, well, capitalism uh, seems like it'll stick around forever. People thought that the right of, of kings was going to stick around forever a couple of centuries ago. And look what has happened to that. So I think that there is always there is, you know, you can be a pessimist as a social scientist, and I think social scientists tend to be pessimists because, in a sense, our the ways in which we think about the world limit the possibility of agency. You know, we think about the world in terms of big structures and how these structures uh, of politics limit the ability of, of uh, people to get things done. And we don't recognize the moments of contingency when stuff can actually happen. So I think that we are. The kinds of wisdom that we offer is, it is useful, it is valuable, because most of the time we are stuck in a world in which the uh, realities are as they are, and we have to try to, uh, we have to try and accommodate ourselves to that, and we have to try and work within the systems that we have, but there are these openings up. And so I would have a slightly different version of Stan's notion of the value of a book like The Ministry for the Future. So if you look at how Adam describes the polycrisis, Adam Tooze describes the polycrisis, you know, he does say that one of the features of the polycrisis is that it is a paralyzing, in this it is intellectually paralyzing. And so I think the fact that Stan wrote that book, uh, even if the solutions very often weren't the plausible solutions that uh, you know, we're going to reach, some of them are really interesting. Others, like uh, his uh, discussion of cryptocurrency, uh, he has probably, I think, decided himself was not a particularly good idea. The fact that you are beginning to argue about that and inviting 
counter argument creates a space for exploration of possibilities. And this is one of the things that I think that good science fiction of that sort has always been important in doing, in generating the sense that there, and this gets back to your first question, that there are possible futures beyond the futures that seem to us to be uh, inevitably as they are. And, uh, and so to the extent that we can balance the uh, you know, so this is Gramsci, and sort of has this famous line, of course, about the pessimism of the intellect, the optimism of the will. So you want to combine the pessimism of the social scientist with the optimism of the uh, science fiction writer in order to get a uh, better sense of, you know, sort of, yes, it is really hard. Y yes, 99% of the time, it is a miserable grind. You do not know what the better future is that you're working towards, but there may be these sudden flares of possibility where things temporarily open up and uh, new and crazy and wonderful possibilities may emerge. Great. I think it's a great note to end on. Thank you very much, Henry Farrell. Thank you. In the weeks since Henry's talk, I've been inspired by how he points to collaborative technologies like Wikipedia, where behind the scenes people disagree with each other pretty forcefully, but as a whole they still build towards the goal of greater knowledge and understanding, as that being one way to get out of the deep mess that globalization and the doctrine of growth have placed us in. In the face of all these potential crises, it's a note of optimism that I hope you can take with you from this talk. If you'd like to watch the full video of Henry Farrell's talk, learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, or become a LongNow member, go to longnow.org. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to the next time. <laughs>